and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. I'm so excited to bring you today's episode. I really have the first ever guest on the podcast. His name is Jesse Atade. He's a friend, he's also a librarian and a fellow cinephile, and we chose to talk about the 1945 film, The Enchanted Cottage. It's directed by John Cromwell. And I love our discussion of this film. I love that we shared an affinity for this film. It was really great to actually engage in a discussion and a conversation with another person about a movie because as longtime listeners know, I'm the only host of this podcast and I have been for two years now. So it was really lovely to invite somebody else in and to hear about his love of films and to talk about a film that both of us love. If you're not familiar with it, The Enchanted Cottage is about two people, Laura Pennington, played by Dorothy McGuire, and Oliver Bradford, played by Robert Young, and they meet each other at this enchanted cottage. And it seems to have these magical properties to change the way that they see each other. Laura Pennington struggles with her own unattractiveness, and that is a big struggle for her. And Oliver Bradford is a veteran of the Second World War who comes back with scars on his face, and he's also disabled. And the two of them fall in love, and their love really transforms how they view each other physically. In our discussion, Jesse and I talk about ugliness, queerness, disability, and we also talk about how this film is such a strong and powerful affirmation of love. This is such a beautiful film. It's sort of obscure. Not a lot of people know about it. So I'm really excited to bring you this discussion and to share my love for this film with you. I really hope that you will stick around and that you'll listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast and the work that I am doing on a monthly basis, and you can access all kinds of rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. I have merchandise, so if you want some Her Head in Films swag, look into that. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Aaron, Rachel, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons and for helping me do this work that I'm doing in sharing my love for cinema. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films. That's really important. Just spread the word. If you love the podcast and you listen to it, tell people. I'd love to be able to reach as many people as possible with my story, with the things that I have to share. It means a lot to me. So spread the word and tell people if you really love her head in films. You can send me an encouraging message or comment or just engage with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
at Her Head in Films. Just search for me and I'll pop up. And you can see links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So as I said, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you about The Enchanted Cottage. I'm so glad that Jesse agreed to come on and to talk about the film with me. And I think we just had a really lovely conversation. I hope that you like it. I hope it inspires you to go seek out the film and and watch it. I think it's just a really beautiful film. So without further delay, here is my discussion with Jessia Tate about The Enchanted Cottage. Her Head in Films is joined by librarian and fellow cinephile Jesse Atade. Hello, Jesse. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm excited to discuss The Enchanted Cottage with you. But first, I want to ask you some questions about yourself. First, just please introduce yourself to the listeners and just give some background about who you are. Yes, as you said, my name is Jesse. And uh, first off, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be talking to you today. So yes, as you said, I'm a librarian. I am located in San Francisco. Um, I grew up in California in a rural part of Central California and have lived now in San Francisco for um, nine years. I moved up here for school, actually. I did at San Francisco State, I did get a master's degree in cinema studies, and I'm currently working on one in English. I'm writing my thesis currently. That is also the library that I am employed by and have been working there for about three years and um, is also at San Francisco State as well. So that's a a little bit about me. Is there any social media stuff that you want to share, like where people can find you beyond this episode and beyond our conversation? Yeah, definitely. I kind of as a outgrowth of my uh, what I'm studying for for my thesis, which is queer art from the pre Stonewall era. So and specifically like the 20s, 30s and 40s, I've started an Instagram account and its name is queer and then underscore modernisms. And yeah, it's basically all kinds of it's basically all the things that I am interested in and looking at or come across that I know is not going to go in my thesis and yeah I've been running that for a few months and I've been really pleased with the response it's been getting so that is definitely somewhere we can kind of get a get a look at me as well yeah I follow you on there and I really like your account and it's a lot of history and stuff that I don't know and I didn't know about because there is so much out there that we don't know so I'll definitely put the link to your Instagram in the show notes of this episode and a lot of the stuff that we talk about or you know any kind of links that come up will definitely be in those show notes I am really curious I as you know you're a longtime listener of the podcast and we've known each other for a little while and you know that her head in films really centers the subjective and the emotional and the personal and so I really love having a guest on I like the idea of doing this you are the first guest on her head in films and I'm really grateful that you decided to come on and to talk to me about 
the Enchanted Cottage. And I see this as a really great opportunity to engage with other people about film because I think that the way that we consume cinema now for a lot of us, not for everybody, but those of us who maybe don't have access to art house theaters or don't have movie theaters near us that really play these more art house or older films, it can be really isolating. You're watching a film on a tablet or you're watching it on your computer. So I love the idea of us engaging and talking about a film. And so I thank you for coming on, but also, you know, the personal aspect of the podcast, like it's really important to me for it to be personal. And so that's why I just wanted to ask you a few questions about your experience with cinema, because I just find that really fascinating to learn that about people. So I did want to ask you if you have really any early memories of cinema of the first time of watching films or the kind of films that you were really into when you first got interested in cinema. Yeah, so I actually have an interesting his- personal history uh, with films um, because one of the the things about my background is that I was raised Mennonite Brethren, and so which is a a denomination. It's the particular denomination within that is not Amish. There is Old Order Mennonites, um, but it was still extremely restricted, and especially when it came to any kind of any kind of pop culture or movies, music, TV, all of those things were highly restricted. Like I didn't watch tele- television, non-Christian music, and my films were very were highly restricted. It was something we were kind of able to do, but it was. And so what those things were were very much like Disney films. Some of my earliest and best uh, memories are actually those live action Disney films that were like big in the 60s and 70s, like The Parent Trap, Freaky Friday, The Love Bug, Escape to Witch (laughs) Mountain, Candle Shoe. Um, Yeah, I really... Uh, like especially when we went on vacation my sisters and I um, we would always gravitate towards those and we loved in particular yeah those kinds of films but yeah I did not I definitely did not like grow up my parents weren't in the films you know anything like that and I actually because of that I read much more than I ever watched movies Um, yeah so it was a very like particular particular circumstances that like sparked my interest in cinema in in a much deeper way in a more serious way and you know led me to be the cinephile and to study cinema studies and and things like that before I ask you about that I just wanted to say how you sharing that brings up some of my own memories because I used to have like all kinds of the VHS tapes of the Disney films growing up and I loved those. I think that's something that resonates with a lot of people growing up. And I I watched some of those live action films as well. And I definitely remember them. And I really loved the animated ones. And I have some great memories of that. And I just used to have like stacks of those DVDs. They used to come in like these plastic things. I don't know. They don't even have that anymore, you know. But it sort of made me think of that with my own memories. But come, I'd really like to know how you did get interested in art house cinema and what was the moment or what was the series of events that got you really interested in art house. And then obviously for you to go 
even farther with it and go to college and study it and and all of that so definitely please share that with us yeah so um i definitely the the film that i felt like laid the groundwork for that was titanic actually which came out when i was in middle school when it uh in 1998 i believe uh or 1996 uh but whenever it came out i was in middle school and even though there was ended up being like content that my parents did not approve of the like historical aspect of it overrode it and so I definitely was like one of those people who saw like Titanic six times in the theater and was like very much into it and I felt like that's um it laid the groundwork in the sense that it was the first time like a film became much more than just like oh, this is a movie to watch or like this is it's like, oh, I want to know about the cast and I want to know about, you know, the the making of and all of that kind of stuff. And so I felt like that now in retrospect, I see that as really laying the groundwork for showing me what like loving cinema is like. But what really I mean, I can literally say the day that I became a cinephile uh, was the evening of, uh, I had looked it up earlier, uh, June 16, 1998, um, because that is the evening that the AFI, the American Film Institute, uh, they broadcast the 100 Years, 100 Movies list that first. Wow. I may yeah. have seen that too, actually. Yeah. And it was, I remember I didn't catch the beginning of it, but like my dad had it on and I just remember being like immediately completely enthralled by it. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the people talking about it and showing clips and like, you know, it builds suspense as, uh, as they like count down the numbers of doing that. And yeah, I made the decision that night that I was going to start watching these films. And so I did. I think it was the next day, or if not, it was very soon after. Ironically, the first film I watched was The Bird, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, which is not on that list, but several Hitchcock films were. Um, I like that film. Yeah, no, and it's... I'm a it's, big fan of The Birds. It's still probably my favorite of his films. Um, yes, it's I, close to it for me. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I love also the same. I mean, Vertigo, I'm a big fan of, um, which I know you're not as much as. But I, at the time, especially like Rear Window, I loved and Notorious. But I yeah, love I. Notorious. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> That such, might be my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's. I can't argue with that choice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely started with seeking out Hitchcock's films and then I feel like once you start going you know you start branching out and I remember some of the early ones um like The Big Sleep and Cat on a Hutton Roof and Casablanca you know were films that I was interested in and yeah it just started going from there and from because that's a specifically American film list and then at the video store there's all these foreign films and started uh going from there it was also very helpful because um, because older films and older films are like G or PG rated, and a lot of foreign films are unrated. And so it was a way to get around my parent. My parents were very strict about PG thirteen movies or especially R rated movies. And so the ironic thing is that a lot of these like foreign films are definitely 
R-rated film. But it was like a way I was in high school and it was a way for me to like get around. It was my way of like rebelling, rebelling in mm-hmm. high school to watch these like, you know, old films from the 60s and stuff, which is kind of funny. It's not everyone's uh, way of rebelling, but yeah, but I I just loved it. And that was in high school. And that's when like the internet finally had, you know, dial up for the first time. And so I had access to IMDb and I found a community there on the message boards and it just kind of went from there. So yeah, until I decided to go back to, to, to graduate school and, and decided to, to pursue a cinema studies one. And yeah, and so that's what I, that was kind of the culmination of it. I've kind of decided from, I, I, I mean, I, I very much enjoyed getting the degree, but uh, in a strange way, uh, academia around film is not very conducive to cinephilia, to really loving films, because you have to be so critical and analytical that I found it actually very difficult in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'd be excited to write about a film I'd like, and then you end up having to, like, critique everything. You know, it's representations of things. And that was just very difficult for me to do. And so, which was one of the reasons why I actually decided that I would not be pursuing anything beyond that with with cinema studies. But yeah, but that was definitely the trajectory. It's, it's just uh, kind of wild to think back of that you know, it was a summer night, literally going into high school, watching a TV special, and it it did what it was supposed to do. It totally converted me. So it was a conversion. <laughs> I love I love stories like that. I love hearing about how people get converted to art house cinema or just cinema, you know, cinema that is beyond the mainstream, beyond what, you know, the blockbusters are and stuff like that. So it's interesting because my own experience also coincided with high school when I had a film appreciation class and that was in 2004. I I found an old diary recently where I know it was in 2004 and it had this amazing teacher and we watched Hitchcock and we watched Casablanca just like you. We watched a lot of those similar films that were probably on that AFI list and that's when I started to feel like, oh, okay, films are more than just entertainment. There's actually art there. It's also interesting how we share that similar disillusion with academia, but for me it was with literature because that's what I studied in college when I went, and then for you it was with cinema. And as you were talking about your early memories with cinema, I was going to ask you, like, is it still that intense? I mean, I hadn't planned on asking you that, but in the moment I was thinking... I wonder if it's still that magical and intense for you all these years later. To in regards to films, like have I been able to to recapture that? The... Do you, do you still feel? I mean, I know that there's certain films that I watch, and it's the magic is still there. When I watch Jean Vigo's La Delon, which is about to be, I think there's a new 4K restoration coming out or something of it. When I watch that film, that film is very magical to me and beautiful. Or when I watch The Passion of Joan of Arc, like I still feel the magic of films, I guess. Like, or I guess I try to, like I try to hold on to it. And I guess I wonder if it's the same for you. Like, do you still feel that same passion as you did? Yeah, no, I definitely, and that was that was really key, one of the key things of leaving cinema studies, or deciding not to pursue it, because I completed it, but because I just wasn't, I was not willing to give that up, like, I, 
I did. I wanted to go see a film and be thrilled by it or, you know, any of the, the countless emotions that one, a few, one experiences while watching a film. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. It is, you know, it is frequently that a film amazes me or, you know, sends me down a rabbit hole wanting to find more and or, you know, looking into a director or things like that. So, yeah, no, that is, yeah, I mean, and I, I feel like that's the thing that, that keeps a cinephile going is are those, you just want the next discovery and the next thing that's going to be magical and, you know, and it's like an insatiable kind of thing. Like, it's not like, okay, well, I'm good. I've, I've seen enough good movies. You just have to have more. <laughs> Definitely. I always love that process of discovery. And it's just fascinating to me that you saw that AFI show because I don't know if I've seen the whole thing, but I feel like I've definitely seen I I, ca I caught parts of it. I know I did because I remember it. I remember those films being talked about. So that's really interesting. I would love to know what a few of your favorite films are and why they are your favorite films. Yeah. Um, and as you know, that's, I mean, that's like the impossible question for a cinephile. Uh, it's like deci deciding between your favorites. But there are, I mean, there's certainly a few films that I, I do love more than any others. And uh, first and foremost of those is the, uh, or is Before Sunset from the Before trilogy, the Richard Linklater film starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, but it's specifically the second one before Sunset that I love. I love beyond all other films in a lot of ways. Um, I first saw it, I was studying abroad in London and, and that's when it was released. And every time I felt homesick, I would go watch it. So I ended up seeing it like four or five times over the course of my time there. And yeah, and now it's a film. I mean, it's a, it's one of those films that I that you revisit and you see your life in it in different ways. And that's what it's been since there. So it's like become something even bigger than just like a movie. Like I can see my life philosophies and, you know, things that I think about. It's like, uh, it'll suddenly strike me like, Oh yeah, that's, that was kind of sourced in before sunset. So that's, that's what I consider my favorite film for sure. A few others uh, last year at Marion bad is like the artiest of art, you know, 1960s art cinema. It's kind of one of those films people make fun of um, in a certain way, but it really, it enthralls me just like every frame of it. And it's every time I rewatch it, I'm just utterly enthralled um, by the, the beauty of it and the, and just the way that it plays with perception. And I know it's not a lot of people's cup of tea, but I, love it very very much and yeah a few others i really love musicals um jacques demy's uh demoiselles de rochefort um meet me in st louis uh gentlemen prefer blondes as a favorite uh jane russell is like what i consider my favorite actress i'm a big fan and that's like her best role and i love her with Mar marilyn monroe in that film but yeah my favorite. I, yeah i yeah, love yeah, yeah, marilyn yeah. yes you're the the you love Marilyn and uh, yeah, no, Jane is my favorite. Um, as good as Marilyn is. She's so good in that film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a particular affinity with French cinema and I know that's something we often connect on. And yeah, that's, those are 
those are a few, but I could I could really spend this whole time just like going through my favorite films. So <laughs> I'll leave it oh, at those I several. <laughs> I know it's hard. It, it really is. You've told me about Last Year in Mary and Bad, and I still have to see it. Um, Alain René is not an easy director, really, but I, I like that he's sort of challenging in some ways. Like, I still love Hiroshima Mon Amour and even Night and Fog, his Holocaust film right and um Mm -hmm. he's just one of those directors he had a very interesting body of work i think so it's high on my list to eventually see um mary and bad for sure it's an it's an experience you should have even if you end up not loving it um Mm. it's it's uh definitely it captures a certain period of time and it's so glamorous and delphine sarig is so lovely in it and i definitely recommend it i won't promise you love it though (laughs) yeah well and then i think some films get these reputations as being very arty or very difficult but sometimes if you open yourself to it or if you just kind of i don't know something was similar with la ventura by antonioni that was a film where i i watched it the first time i was like "Eh, i don't know about this it felt very arty i guess you could say but then it it gradually just sort of started to take me over and haunt me over the years. And I could imagine that Mary and Bad or something like that could happen in a similar way that some films you have to, maybe you have to be ready for them too. Like maybe Mary and Bad is not what you watch when you're first getting into Art House. Like maybe that's something you, you go to a little bit later when you're ready for it. But those films matter, you know, and they're definitely important for that reason. They do challenge us and say something unique. So I'll definitely check it out eventually. I did want to I did just want to ask you if you've watched anything good lately because I'm just sort of interested in what people are watching because I'm always sharing what I watch and so I'm just curious if you've seen any good films lately yeah I was just looking at the list because I I keep a running list of everything I watch so yeah some of the last few ones um, I revisited Bringing Up Baby, the 1938 Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedy, um, which I never loved. And so revisiting it, and I actually didn't care for it all that much upon watching it. But as soon as it ended, I it's one of those weird situations where I've been thinking about it nonstop. And so it kind of got its hooks into me somehow, and I'm trying to unpack that. So, but I, Holiday, the other film they, they made that year, Grant, Grant and Hepburn, is also like top five. I love that film so much. And yeah, otherwise I had a chance, I saw Meet Me in St. Louis on the, the big screen, um, which is always wonderful. Another, you know, top 10 for me. Um, at your, it was definitely on my radar, but I definitely prioritize Journey Through French Cinema, uh, the documentary, because of you, and I thought that was just spectacular, and I can't wait for the next, um, the next part of it to be, to be released. The one other film I do want to give a shout out to, because I literally just got back from it, and I'm kind of glowing still, but, uh, Crazy Rich Asians was a really lovely film, and I enjoyed it very much, so wanted to throw that out there as well (laughs) it looks wonderful it looks like such a fun you know night and it's so groundbreaking and important in so many ways too yeah no it's definitely i mean it is it is a romantic comedy um you know it plays with all those tropes but 
yeah, um, it is just visually sumptuous. Constant Wu is, I hope she becomes an A-plus actress. Utterly delightful. So definitely wanted, I might be watching Last Year at Marion Bad, but Crazy Rich Asians is, you know, I, I love that as well. So... Um, oh, I, I love romantic comedies, but I feel like the last few years there just hasn't been a lot of good ones. So it's I, hopefully maybe Crazy Rich Asians will restart this, you know, because, you know, we lost Nora Ephron and I feel like we lost really great romantic comedies for the most part. I mean, I guess they're out there somewhere, but I haven't been able to really find them. So when I saw the trailer for Crazy Rich Asians on top of it being so important and you know revolutionary i thought wow that just looks like a fun romantic comedy that looks like something i'd want to go see and i know mama mia has been really popular too so maybe the romantic comedy will make some kind of little comeback hopefully yeah i'm hoping i'm hoping hollywood re i mean just this year that there's a lot of audiences that want to see a lot of things other than a comic book movie and, and, you exactly. know, Black Panther is a c important comic book, you know, all of those things, but it's very important in its own way. But yeah, it seems like with the success of Mamma Mia, which was also very fun, Crazy Rich Asian, you know, I really hope that they realize people are really hungry to see a lot of different other kinds of films. And we're not all teenage boys. <laughs> it's, it's so frustrating what gets released. It's just... It, it almost forces people to Netflix. I mean, people complain about Netflix, but at least they're making some films that are not superheroes and, and all of that. And if you love those films, fine, but there are people that want different films. And I feel like we're not getting a lot of options anymore. The landscape has changed so drastically with film and with, you know, what you can find in a theater. It has just changed so much. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, completely agree. So I'm hoping, so glad of its success, and I'm hoping we see a lot more of it in the future. Well, and it makes me grateful for some of the older films. I find that sometimes I just can't really handle the stuff that's being released now, especially with romantic films. And I find that going back in time and watching some of those older romantic films like The Enchanted Cottage, which we're talking about today, is just so incredibly pleasurable and just lovely this is a pretty obscure film from 1945 for those who have not seen it i just want to give like a brief synopsis about it it's directed by john cromwell it was released in 1945 and the cottage in the title it's this cottage that's on the shores of new england it's what's left of this estate that's built by an english nobleman long ago and much of that estate burns down and this wing from that remains and it's remodeled and it gets turned into this cottage. That cottage is then rented out to young married couples and they can live there as long as they want. So that's part of the enchanted part. And all these couples that have lived in this house, they sign their name on the windows. And in this cottage, the a widow... A widow is the caretaker. Her name's Mrs. Minnett. She lost her husband in World War One. And in this cottage, a man named Oliver Bradford, he's a man disabled and disfigured by the Second World War. He meets this woman. Her name's Laura Pennington. And she's very quiet and she's referred to as homely, 
which is ugly. And the two of them end up falling in love with each other over the course of the film. And their love for each other really transforms the way they see one another physically. They see each other as beautiful when maybe the outside world doesn't see them that way. And love is really the enchanting part of the film and that's just sort of a brief synopsis um, but it's this obscure film from 1945 that not a lot of people know about not a lot of people talk about if you google it not much comes up so I want to talk about just for a moment how we each discovered the enchanted cottage because it's not that well known and it just not a lot of people discuss it or put it on lists or anything like that. So I'm curious as to how you even came across the Enchanted Cottage in your own life. Yeah, it's, um, I don't have a great answer because I don't specifically remember that. Um, it's a film that had kind of been on my radar for a while. But yeah, I mean, like, Dorothy McGuire's like not a major actress we think of now or, you know, like there's not that hook that sometimes other films have but it was always kind of on my radar and but the few times that I came across it it kind of is the kind of film that has like this cult-like love about it that the people who know it really love the movie and oddly it's in two gay novels that I can specifically remember coming across it there was one, it's called End of the World Book by Alistair uh, McCartney. It's not a very good book, but he has, he talks about it and how he like stayed homesick from school one day and like found it and it's, he's always remembered it and now he like imagines, you know, his relationship with his boyfriend and how like emulating that and it's also in the novel kiss of the spider woman the oh i believe it's argentinian novel but it's basically a and then it was uh, turned into a film but it's set in a prison and it's a gay man and like this this other man who's like a revolutionary but basically the gay man basically to pass the time recounts films um and the enchanted cottage is one of them and so that was another way that it was on my radar and just the way that he like lovingly talks about this film and like tries to recount it um that I always wanted to see it and it finally it was only about a year or two that I first saw it and yeah and I joined that cult because I really enjoyed it as well that's fascinating I had no idea that the film was mentioned in those books at all but I think that's a neat way to come across films and that's happened to me where I've read books and certain films were mentioned in them and then I went and watched them and I think that's a cool process but I saw it one night watching Turner Classic Movies I don't know what year it was it was it was quite a few years ago and I want to say that Robert Osborne was alive then and that he did like an introduction to it and that's the way that I saw it because really before the internet that's the main way that I consumed cinema was Turner Classic Movies. It was really the only way you could access older films if you were a cinephile and maybe you didn't have a really great video store or you just didn't have access to things like that and so I watched a lot of Turner Classic Movies and I have like such fond memories of discovering certain films on Turner Classic Movies, whether it's The Passion of Joan of Arc or Wuthering Heights, the one with Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon, which is my absolute all-time favorite personally. Um, I just 
sometimes I have these intense memories of discovering films or even Barbara Loden's Wanda. I saw that on Turner Classic Films. So The Enchanted Cottage was just one of those films that I saw one night. Hadn't really planned on watching it. Had never heard of it. I kind of miss that like with the internet now. We mainly watch things through streaming, through Filmstruck. I do at least. I don't really just turn the television on at 8 o'clock at night and just watch whatever's about to come on. I'm much more I guess planned and I, I sort of miss those happy accidents or those random discoveries that I used to make when I would just have Turner Classic movies on and watch what was what was coming on that night and I feel like I made a lot of discoveries that way and I've just been thinking about that recently but that's definitely how I found this film and I am definitely part of the cult. I, I love this film. I don't I rarely see people talk about it or bring it up or mention it. It feels like this little obscure gem. I I just think that it does enchant you and it almost casts a spell on you when you watch it for the first time. And even though I had seen it years ago, it had stayed with me. And so that's why I was really glad that we're going to talk about it. Yeah, no, I was really thrilled when we were talking about what what film to do that there was just something about this one that really called out. And I was glad that you were wanting to do it as well, because it's there's just something to it that if you're on its wavelength, it really sticks with you. So so I'm just really thrilled we're we're talking about it. What was it like to rewatch it for this episode? Did you like feel even more enjoyment watching it? Yeah, and it was one of those lucky, lucky things, because as you're well aware, sometimes you revisit something you have good memories of, and it doesn't quite have the same effect the second time. And even though it wasn't that long ago, it was only a year or two ago that I first saw it. But yeah, it. I was even more taken with it this second viewing. Yeah, I just found it richer and more resonant, and I even found it very technically sophisticated in a way I didn't, um, just like the camera work and the, the editing and stuff like that. I just thought it was beautifully handled, and I, I can see myself revisiting it fairly often now in the future. I really love when that happens. I love when you revisit a film and it's even better than you remembered. And sometimes that second viewing can make uh, can make a big difference. I've found that with certain films, whether it's a recent film that I talked about in the podcast called Morvern Caller by Lynn Ramsey. That was one of those films I watched the first time. I was like, eh, okay, you know. And then I watched it a second time and something clicked for me and something was different. It was the same thing with La Ventura. The first time I was, I was not connecting. And then, then later viewings, I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, this is art. This is amazing. I love this. So I I love how that happens. How sometimes with second, third, fourth viewings, a film can just be even more powerful for you. It's wonderful when it happens. I feel like that's one of the things that you want as a cinephile and are so glad when it happens that way. Hmm? Absolutely. Like when your memory holds up, like, and then sometimes you watch something and you're like, why did I ever like that film? It's terrible. Right. Or it's flat or it's, yeah, just something. It doesn't thrill you in the same way. So, um, nope. So it was wonderful that uh, The Enchanted Cottage does not fall into that category. Yeah, and as I said, it was it came out in 1945. It's by John Cromwell. And it, as you said, it stars Dorothy McGuire. She plays Laura Pennington. It stars Robert Young as Oliver Bradford. There's Herbert Marshall as John Hillgrove. And Mildred Natwick as Mrs. Minnett. She plays the widow, the caretaker, who 
takes care of this cottage and rents it out. It's actually based on a 1923 play by Arthur Wing Pinero, and that original play looked at the emotional and physical scars of World War One. There was an early silent version of the film that was made in 1924, but in the 1945 update they make it World War II and I do want to just share a few just a few tidbits that came through in the research I did. This was actually one of Cromwell's favorites of all of his films and Robert Young who plays Oliver speaks very lovingly of this film. He said that it was such a joy to make and he even named one of his homes the Enchanted Cottage, which is fascinating to me. He just loved making it. He thought it was like one of the greatest love stories Robert Young did. Also with Dorothy McGuire, she really insisted on her ugliness in the film being created through a lack of makeup and through sort of ill-fitting clothes. I read that I think maybe in the play or the silent version, her her physical appearance was kind of different. I'm not sure in what ways, but she wanted it to be maybe more subtle and just through the lack of makeup and, and the clothing. I thought they did a good job with that, you know, and, and really brought that through. So now um, I just want to talk about, you know, different themes and, and things that came to the surface for us. First, I do want to sort of talk about the enchanted part of the film and like the fairy tale and the supernatural aspect of the film, because I think that's such an important part of it. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, one of the things in this viewing of it, it really struck me because in a lot of ways it is, uh, at first glance, this like kind of like ultimate romance kind of a film. But it does have all of these, it was just very interesting to me how it has like these gothic elements to it um, and how this like idea of enchantment uh, could have been taken in very different directions. So I was very struck. There's a, um, Laura says at one point about the cottage, she said, it's not haunted, it's enchanted. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about like how clearly both of those terms have such different associations and resonances to it and how really thin the line is between the two and how for one person enchantment can be you know, one person's haunting and like something like Beauty and the Beast came to mind, you know, like going to the castle and, you know, like that's enchanted as well. And, but there's a part of Beauty and the Beast that's as much of like a horror or a, you know, ghost film or any of those things as well as like this lovely romance film. And so it was interesting to me how it constantly could have gone into a different, a darker, like, gothic direction, and it doesn't do that instead. And I just found that fascinating, how it kind of teases and plays with that in different ways. But it never does, and it be, it's this, like, beautiful romance film, and um, enchantment is used in that way instead. Well, and I think you had also mentioned, like, uh, Rebecca, for instance, by Hitchcock. I love that book, and so much, by Daphne du Maurier. And isn't, isn't the woman's name Mrs. Danvers? Am I, is that right? And she's such a what is it, a menacing presence in Rebecca, like, and in this, Mrs. Minute, who plays sort of, I guess, that kind of role where she's the caretaker of the cottage and, and all of that, she's actually very different 
she's not a menacing person she is like a lonely woman but there's even there's there's the supernatural thing about her even where at times she seems to like prophesy the future or something like when Oliver first comes to the cottage because the way it is at first is that uh, Laura has been away from the town for a while and she comes back and she's looking for a job and so she becomes sort of the housekeeper the maid of the enchanted cottage along with the widow and and so at first Oliver comes to the house as a beautiful man it's 1941 he's uh, going to get married to his fiance Beatrice he's very handsome and he shows up there and then later on he has he gets drafted and he has to go into world war ii and mrs minute when she hears that when she hears that he's going to be going to the war she immediately has a bad feeling throughout the film there's these moments where mrs minute seems to prophecy things or seems to get these feelings or be clairvoyant in some way so you kind of see that supernatural aspect to the film in that way as well yeah, and that that's probably the best example where I kept thinking, oh, this could very easily spin in a different direction because mm-hmm. she is like there is so she's kept kind of a mysterious character and she's filmed very similarly than Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, who's like this menacing figure. Um, and there's like for, with uh, Mrs. Minute in the Enchanted Cottage, there's like I remember there's there's like one sequence where she's like standing there kind of in the dark looking out the open door and it's like a, a storm like whips up and it's like it's like, oh, is this is she supposed to be, we think she's like a good character, but like is there something? something dark going on here and that's where I felt like it really kept teasing of just like ooh, maybe this could be a lot darker um but it was they just seemed to be filmed in such similar ways for a while and but then ultimately they have such different functions within the films and Mrs. Danvers a very negative menacing figure Mm -hmm. where Mrs. Minute becomes like more of a maternal and brings them together or is central in bringing them together in a lot of ways Well, you're so right. It could go into dark territory. And if you think about the things that this film is looking at, a wounded man, a disfigured man, it's it's looking at very serious things like the wounds of war, the trauma of war, loneliness, different things, you know, disability, things like that. But it's able to handle these really dark, difficult issues with like a lightness of touch, I guess you could say. And I guess it does that through the romance aspect and the enchantment aspect, that supernatural sort of magical aspect of it. But this cottage has such a power immediately, especially when Laura first enters it. Like when she first enters the cottage, she just looks like she's just overtaken by it. And and you can definitely feel that. So, And also, um, there's another part of it that's sort of enchanting is like you had said at one time that framing device of the music and how do you want to talk about that like how really the enchanted cottage there's like as I'm talking about it there's sort of odd things about the film and it's sort of weird the way that it all comes together it's doing a lot of different things at once that it's funny you say that because I was that's exactly what I was gonna say I'm like if you haven't seen it and you're hearing us describe it, there's a lot of elements that sound very strange or like why they would go together. 
and the framing device is a really great example of that so their friend john john hillgrove he as well as so he is their neighbor and he is blind but he is also a musician a pianist and how the film begins the framing device why we're finding out the story is that he's like gathered together this party to unveil his latest composition and it um turns out that it's this composition musical composition um is supposed to convey the story of oliver and laura that just really struck me um he calls it a tone poem actually it just really struck me how it's an it was an interesting to device because for one like the music and it gets very it's like very romantic and like swirly and it like ushers us into the past kind of a thing to the beginning of where the their story starts but it was also a way that it or it struck me how it also seems to signal that this is a story to be experienced more on a like intuitive or sensory level like there's not it's not a cerebral or a logical story and you kind of just have to go with it in the way you know in the way that music is that it's not it doesn't tell a narrative in the same way or convey things and i just thought that was such a such an interesting and kind of i'm sure it's been done in other places but it's a relatively rare way of telling it and i just thought that was just such an interesting way um, and then it closes at the end. It it finishes with him finishing his composition. So technically the film is supposed to be, I guess, what these people who are listening to his music are supposed to be, the story that's supposed to be told with them. Like, it sounds kind of absurd <laughs> when you say it out loud or put it in those terms, but it works really beautifully within the film itself. Yeah, I'm like sitting here like imagining someone listening to this episode who's never seen this right. film. And they're probably like... <laughs> what is going on like okay there's this man and this composer who is telling this story he has a composition and then i I, like there's so much going on in the film like i would imagine if you have not seen it it just sounds absurd but if you watch it you actually feel like a very emotional connection to the film and it it is enchanting and i love that you talk about how it it has to be experienced on that intuitive level. Like you can't go into this film saying, Oh, what's logical and what's rational. And the film doesn't invite you to do that. I think the film is really inviting you into a story that is emotional and romantic and sort of otherworldly in some way. I, I don't know. It's there's a magic to it. And, and it's just open about that. It's just, there's, there's weird aspects of it, but all of it comes together in a really beautiful way and maybe some people would see it as sappy or sentimental or a bit absurd but when every time I watch it this being the second time I was totally into it I was I I felt such an emotional connection to the film and it really just swept me away yeah absolutely and I mean I think it it's this is a good demonstration of classic Hollywood how they're they were able to throw together so many absurd elements together in a way but the the way that they're put together and the filmmaking and all of that like it come it's so smoothly put together that all of these things that sound strange and um or don't make any sense or just sound kind of absurd 
um, mm -hmm. they work so beautifully. Like you just completely go with it just because it's been put together and filmed and all of those things like so smoothly. And so it just like draws you in and yeah, all of these, all of these things make sense within the logic of the film. It's a really, but you have to go with it. And I think that's, you know, what's interesting about that device. And hopefully, hopefully it's successful for most people of, you know, ushering them into this story that we're about to undertake. Yeah, just you have to be open to it, I think. And like, I think I love that you said that, like, there's the film has its own logic, you either you either get it or you kind of don't. I wonder if it's one of those films where it's like people either really love it the way that we do, even though it's not a film that we would put in our top five, but we just enjoy it. It's an enjoyable film to watch. There's some things that resonate with us. And then I wonder if there are some people who are just like, oh my God, this film is terrible. And I think we're maybe in that little club that's like, oh, this is amazing. And, you know, we're kind of in the minority, but... Certainly. I mean, I, and I am totally sympathetic to, I mean, someone could really like go through and say like, this isn't that good or like, this is sappy or, you know, like, I feel like mm. someone could totally go through that list and it would be like, yeah, you know, like I can't dispute that some of those things, but <laughs> if it does, it does, as we keep saying, if it works for you, it, it just seems to really work for you. So well, yeah. and that's, that's also why I'm glad that we're talking about it because we're, we're creating a space to appreciate the film, to sort of celebrate the film, to say, well, these are the things in it that I think do matter and that I do think resonate. And we're just sort of, I guess, making our case a little bit, you know, that these are the things that we think. Because I do think there are aspects of the film that are actually really maybe radical or just at least very interesting. Or there are things that you wouldn't expect the way that certain things are represented in the film. And so I did want to talk a bit about how the film approaches like ugliness and beauty and I know that that was a theme that both of us struck on and that we both noticed so I want to talk for a, I want to talk about it for a little while a big central part of this film is the way that the characters struggle with ugliness with not living up to the societal standards of beauty with Oliver it happens when he comes back from World War II and his face is disfigured and his arm is something has happened to his arm as well where he has trouble moving it. So he's both disabled and disfigured. And this is for a man who before that had been very attractive and very handsome, had a fiance. And when he comes back from the war, he comes back from the war and his life is really shattered in a lot of ways he knows what it's like the before and the after of and he has lost everything he's lost the fiance he's lost his health he's lost his beauty he's really grieving that he's really struggling with that and how to navigate his new reality and for Laura, her big struggle has been her ugliness. There's this little boy in the film, um, when John Hillgrove, the blind composer, that's what he's referred to in the credits at the beginning. But then we learn that his name is John Hillgrove, and he's the composer that created the tone poem. The first time that he meets Laura, he doesn't know what she looks like, obviously. But his little nephew is with him, and he describes her as homely, as ugly. And she she does not fit the 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 standards of beauty for women really now dorothy mcguire normally looked quite pretty but for the film as i said earlier she 
did not wear makeup. She wore sort of ill-fitting clothes. Her eyebrows look kind of thick and just her hair looks really like thin and, and sort of flat and there's nothing there that's very feminine or her trying to beautify herself. And a big struggle for her in the film is her ugliness and her trying to deal with that. And that was something that really resonated with me. I'm pretty open about stuff on the podcast. And I think I've talked about it in the past that I am not considered conventionally beautiful and that, you know, I'm not seen as attractive in the world. I never have been. It's something that I've struggled with my whole life and the pain that it has caused me and the way that it scarred and wounded me, honestly, if I'm going to be open about it. But I want to be honest and I, I just, it's a personal thing for me, but I want to talk about it. And Laura's struggle with her ugliness resonated very, very deeply with me. And ever since I've seen the film, I've been thinking about it. And there's this really powerful scene that I, I want to talk about. And um, this is when Oliver's gone and he's gone to the war. It's before he uh, has come back. And because Oliver... Oliver and his fiance at the time were going to rent the cottage. And then because he's called into World War II, he's not able to rent it anymore. So um, Laura has no work to do at the cottage. So she goes out and she finds another job. She becomes a dishwasher at a local restaurant, it looks like. And one day, these sailors come into the restaurant and the owner or the manager, um, I guess Laura's boss, she comes into the kitchen while Laura's washing the dishes, and she insists that Laura go out and meet these sailors. And you can tell that Laura doesn't want to go and do that, but this manager insists that she go out and dance with them. And this is just one of the most heartbreaking scenes to me personally. I don't know if a lot of people can relate to it, but like a couple of men start to come in her direction. They see her from a, a different angle, I guess. And then as soon as they get closer to her and see what she really looks like, they completely stop and they don't approach her. And, and everybody's up and dancing and she's just sitting there and she, she watches these men reject her. She watches them look at her and then not come any closer to her. And that's maybe the thing we don't talk about enough with ugliness of what it means to be unattractive. And I know that's a subjective thing, but I think we can agree that there are certain bodies and certain people that are not seen as attractive or beautiful. It's It can be subjective at times, but there's just certain bodies and, and things like that that you're not acceptable. You're not seen as attractive. And um, what it means, though, is that you're isolated. It means that people keep their distance from you, that they don't touch you, that they don't come near you, that they don't want to know you. And that's what kills your soul, I think. That's what's so damaging is that your beauty or your ugliness determines who approaches you and who doesn't. It determines whether you get to be on the dance floor dancing and living, or you have to sit on the sidelines and the margins and watch people reject you and the pain of that, um, especially for a woman. And she has to sit there and watch these people laugh and dance and she's separate from it. And her ugliness makes her separate from it. And she is in that moment, the other, and she's so upset about it. You can feel her longing to be accepted. You can feel her shame over not fitting in this scene. I don't know if I've seen a scene so fully capture what it's like 
to be an unattractive woman, to exist in the world as someone who is not seen as beautiful. Like it just hit me straight to the heart. It was like a knife to my heart because, you know, I, I had those experiences myself and she runs from the restaurant. She goes back to the cottage. The cottage in a lot of ways is like a refuge for her. It's an escape from the world. It's an escape from people, from the people and from society that judges her and, and dehumanizes her and ugliness for a woman is is a great shame it may be one of the greatest shames that a woman has to go through if she's ugly it's a burden and it makes you an outcast and um Laura just doesn't fit into the world because of it I just related to it so much with my own personal experiences because I know what it's like to not be asked to dance to not go to the prom to not be asked out to not be seen as beautiful to really be alone and and how really painful that can be and I I really give the film a lot of credit for for doing that for showing that because especially in that old Hollywood era women were beautiful you know think of Jane Russell think of Marilyn Monroe who I love and um the male gaze, especially in Hollywood and in films, it really emphasized women's sexual attractiveness. But this film really dares to show a woman not as beautiful. And Dorothy McGuire insisted on it. She insisted on not looking beautiful. I, I like that this film shows a woman in a different way. And I like that it it doesn't sexualize her or objectify her. That it shows a woman in a different way and it it's still focusing on beauty, I guess, but it's showing that there are other parts of you beyond just your physical appearance. And it allows a woman to be on screen without looking beautiful. And there's really not much of a makeover in the film. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but later on, they go through this transformation where they see one another as beautiful, but the outside world cannot see that. Only they see it. But I do think the film sort of resists trying to fix these characters and it allows them to really remain who they are and to remain the same. And but that scene in that in the restaurant, it was just ugh, it really hit me hard. I mean, I wonder like, do you remember that scene? Do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, no, I I'm very glad you brought up that scene because that was really the one that um, I feel like in memory, the like romance and everything is what lingered, at least from my first viewing. But uh, that scene, the specific scene of her, you know, on that dance floor was, I mean, it, it's really, I would say it's exceptional in, I don't know if I've seen something else in a classic Hollywood film or even in a lot of ways, contemporary films in that way. It's, it is a really, I think it's important, almost the entire film, except for the framing device, only takes place at the cottage. And this is like the one time we really get the other the outside world essentially um and her interacting with it and it just really yeah no it's uh it is a haunting and heartbreaking just the way that that she is framed because there's this exuberant dance floor and everyone is clearly like celebrating and drinking and and just her there on the sidelines and yeah the way it's re you know she's rejected it's it's really it's really sensitively and really 
it, and it's and it's really dark in a lot of ways. Or you know, like it really dares to go to and expose an experience like that and it doesn't sugarcoat it in a way and it was really it was kind of shock shocking to revisit it of just like how how to the extent it does go that and i and i think we should emphasize that you know we're saying you know like oh laura thinks she's ugly or homely but but the film itself really emphasizes that like we're not reading into it like that is they use those terms and they do that and it's it is it's really something to see to one to see that at that time and in a way that um i don't know it's it's just really not explored or conveyed with that the same kind of force and yeah in the same way it was just heart-wrenching and kind of like a punch to the stomach in the way and yeah it's it's one of the the highlights of a highlight if a sad part can be a highlight um of the film i just think it's the film's at its best during that scene yeah and i th- i think it can resonate with a lot of women like this is not an example of a beautiful woman saying oh i'm so ugly this is this is a woman who's seen as ugly by other people not just a woman who thinks she's ugly or feels that she is ugly it's this is her objective reality this is the way that she navigates the world and I think that if you feel like you know if you experience that I think it can really resonate with you and I actually think it's a theme that resonates even more in the modern world with Instagram and with social media I think about that nowadays with kids like who are teenagers who maybe post selfies of themselves and they're defining their worth based on how many comments they get or how many likes they get and I imagine how brutal it must be for people who look like me or who don't don't fit the societal standards of beauty. I mean, is progress being made? I guess. I guess we're expanding the idea of beauty. I mean, to a certain extent, but I don't think we've really come that far with it. And I think a lot of women, myself included, obviously, could sort of see themselves in Laura. Like for me, this is a part of the film that's like really resonant. Like that's why I wanted to talk about it. But she also has this other scene where she gives this speech and I thought it was really beautiful. It's when Oliver... I don't, I think maybe he proposes to her. It's when he comes back disfigured and she's very kind to him and she doesn't judge him and his fiance is not able to handle his disability or his disfigurement. I think he wants to get married or or tries to propose to her and she sort of rebuffs him and she gives this really beautiful speech, I thought, where she says, quote, women like me, as as conscious as we are of our defects, We find refuge in our dreams, daydreams as well as night dreams, merciful dreams in which we're as lovely and desirable as the loveliest and most desirable woman in the world. It's cruel to destroy those dreams, unquote. So she really holds on to her dreams, really maybe the dreams of beauty. I think I think when you're ugly or you live your life not being seen as attractive, it's like you dream of being beautiful. I mean, it's certainly something that I long for. I've always wanted to be beautiful. I've always hungered for it and craved it. I think it's why I love old Hollywood so much. Like, I love Marilyn. I imagine what it must have been like to look that way and, and to be that beautiful. But of course, there's the flip side of the pain 
that Marilyn went through. And I think that's why a lot of women relate to her, are protective of her as well, is that she was someone really damaged by the world as well. But I think even in the world today, even with feminism, even with the progress that women have made to try to be taken seriously for our thoughts and our substance and who we are, I think if you ask, asked a lot of women, they would want to be beautiful, that they feel like failures if they're not, and they feel ashamed if they're not. That no matter their accomplishments, and it's the same with me, no matter the A's that I made in school, no matter the fact that I graduated from college magna cum laude, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how smart people have told me I am or how, you know, other people who love me have said, oh, you're beautiful. You know, they're saying it because they're my parents or they're trying to be nice. None of that changes the objective fact that I'm not beautiful you know, and that I crave it and that I want it and that I dream about it the way that Laura does. And there's just something so heartbreaking about that. It's just, I don't know if men feel that. I don't know if men feel like, well, if I'm not handsome, I'm a complete failure as a human being. But for a woman, you do. You just feel this abject failure if you're not beautiful. It's such a big way that people are defined in the world, especially women. I just saw so much of that in Laura. It really just moved me in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. And I and I think on that point, we can really emphasize how good Dorothy McGuire is in this, in this film and how it also struck me of how good her performance is because it's, you know, there is a transformative part, but she's so good at conveying those things and and being able to understand how these things are registering or like when she overhears things or in the dancing scene um that we were just talking about like so much is registered on her face and you you really get so much of that from from her and it's she's so good at at um yeah conveying that within the film i was extremely impressed by it yeah but I do think that her ugliness her experience of it is what makes her who she is and it makes her able to be more compassionate than Beatrice was his fiance who could not handle his disfigurement it gives her a certain perspective on the world that she would not have if she had been beautiful or if she had been seen as beautiful I mean because I often think about my own life like well who would I be if I had been beautiful who would I be if I hadn't looked the way I looked my whole life. And I, I don't know if I would be who I am. You know, maybe if I'd had more of a social life or if I'd had those things, maybe it would have, maybe I wouldn't have read as much or maybe I wouldn't have gotten interested in cinema. And I mean, you realize that sometimes those painful things about your life and sometimes they do make you who you are and that they do give you a certain perspective on the world that is important and that is that matters you know I think it matters to be compassionate and sympathetic and empathetic and maybe Laura wouldn't have those traits if she was some gorgeous bombshell not that women who are beautiful don't have those things I'm not saying that but I'm saying that someone who experiences the world from the margins and who is seen in a certain way by society sometimes you have to like go within yourself and you have to figure out a way to live and to survive in the world and certain parts of you are cultivated as a result that maybe wouldn't have been cultivated if you had a different experience in the world so 
she she has really that's the thing about the film is that it's saying well no she doesn't look like Marilyn Monroe she's not this gorgeous woman but look at all the other things about Laura that are beautiful you know look at her compassion and her kindness her love for Oliver so there's these other parts of her that exist as well it's not all about her her ugliness or her beauty so yeah and that, I mean obviously that is the thing that brings them together because Oliver believes that she is able to see a different set of value or you know like value him in a way that even he at that point doesn't see himself as mm-hmm. um, another really of the striking moments in the film is the one when they're like first talking after he comes back and he's you know it's been revealed he's been disfigured and and all of that and he has this outburst like you can't imagine what it'd be like to like <laughs> be ugly and then yeah, I remember that. there's this moment and it's he realizes what he had said and that's like w- one of the key turning points to where he realizes that she it's emphasized that that's a point that that they connect on and he opens himself up to her because he feels that way and so mm. yeah that's a I mean, that in itself is, is kind of a complicated topic of, of like, um, yeah, of just like, do you, uh, I don't know. I go back and forth of if that's like a problematic stance to take, but I don't know if we want to get into that or not. What's problematic? Well, just in the, the sense of like, um, like it's only, like only a woman who is considered, you know, physically unattractive would be able to find someone who's disabled attractive. Like there's kind of a weird hmm. put that way. And I've heard, or I did come across it, like a few critiques of it in that way. I think it generally sidesteps it because it's so sympathetically and done. But yeah, I do know that that is out there or has hmm. been out there as well. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely different interpretations and thoughts about it. And yeah, I mean, everybody's definitely entitled to interpret it in their own way, um, of course. But um, I definitely agree. Well, the, but, I mean, the, yeah. I guess the other thing that I would would say about that is, you know, and so in the physical experience of watching the film is uh, they're so excited and they bring, you know, they write to John to come, something has happened to them to come visit them at the cottage. Um, And it's like kept from us for a little while, what has happened to them. And they're like kind of kept in the shadows and we see the back of their heads. And then it's revealed on the screen that, you know, his scar on his face is no longer there and like she um you know her hair's a little different and so that like transformation is done and so they believe and so it is the film keeps it ambiguous whether this is what is this a magical thing and like they have physically transformed like has something literally magical happened Mm -hmm. of course it comes out that um his parents end up coming and reveal that it's really just in their minds or you know that they're seeing each other that way and so it is this and then it goes like back and forth um between the 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 two of them of the the beauty or them in their beautiful states and you know as the other one does that and so it does become this like very curious 
or uh, you know this very even moving way of like perception but the film is very much manipulating you in that way of what you're seeing and it is kept in the air for a long time of like have they like was this a miracle or a magical thing or what actually happened and but i think they do at what was your read at the end do you at the last moment where they're about to go enter the party that the film has been and they like kiss at the where the um where the where the piece has been played and we like see them come at the doorway before they go in i couldn't tell if if they were in their transformed states or if they were in their you know the way that the the rest of the world would see them did you notice anything or I wasn't sure. I do think it's sort of ambiguous. And I sort of went back and forth with with this film thinking, well, is it is it decentralizing beauty or is it just doing is it just reinforcing this idea of beauty? Like, I don't I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's like they when they think that they're beautiful, they almost luxuriate in it. I mean, they're almost like intoxicated by this idea of being beautiful. The the film is still sort of saying that beauty is important, that it's like the highest thing to, I guess, attain to or try to attain. And um, I found myself a little bit uneasy about that because in some ways I thought the film was saying, oh, well, beauty doesn't matter or it shouldn't matter. Look at all these great things about Laura and and all of that. But then by saying, I don't know how to say it's like, why, why do they have to be beautiful? Why is beauty still the most important thing? Why can't he have a facial scar? Why does he need to be fixed or transformed? Why does she need to be transformed? Why can't they just be who they are? And I went back and forth with the film thinking, well, is it sending the message that they can just be who they are? Or is it sending the message, well, beauty is still what matters? That Because when they think that they're beautiful, they're so happy. They're, they're like drunk on it almost. And then when they realize, oh, we're not beautiful. There was no transformation. We still look the way that we've always looked. They're like heartbroken by it. It's like this this other heartbreak that they go through because here they were thinking they had woken up and they were beautiful and then now they find out that they're not. And so the film is still showing beauty as like one of the most important things, I guess you could say. I don't know if I have an opinion either way, but it was just something that occurred to me while I was watching it. Yeah, and that's you've articulated what others have seen as the problematic because okay. it's because it's yeah. Now that you're saying that, I'm like yes. If it's because it it kind of tries to have it both ways mm-hmm. of saying it is okay, but then oh, but isn't it wonderful when they're mm. idealized and they think that they're beautiful? And that exactly. is that's a that's kind of a thorny issue. Mm-hmm. It did make me think though. It would be how different seeing this as a play, which is it was originally written. Because we wouldn't see, I'm presuming, them ever in a transformed state. So as an audience member, we're always aware that they're just imagining this and we're never under the illusion or even see them in this other state. And so it's only like through the quote unquote magic of cinema that we're able even to imagine them in these other, this transformed state that in a way if we're just watching this on a stage 
they stayed and I mean actually I guess you they could redress them or I don't know how how it would be but um yeah it is that 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 is kind of the thorny issue kind of at the heart of the film um, yeah and that I'm, you don't really think of when you're watching it and it's only like afterwards when you start picking it apart that yeah i mean it might it's it's i just want to acknowledge that i'm conflicted about it that right right on the one hand i feel like it's sort of sub- subverting some of that it's trying to you know it does show the pain that laura goes through feeling like she's ugly and and all of that and i think it does some good things and it does you know some some things really well in terms of looking at beauty looking at those standards that women are held to and stuff like that and then and then it sort of undoes some of that i guess when it really insists that beauty is the most important thing like why why does there need to be a transformation why do they need to be seen as beautiful why can't they just be who they are and so yeah i'm conflicted about it like what the film does and what it doesn't do and so i mean i still love the film i still think it has some important things about it but i'm definitely conflicted on that front like when you show a person like when you show a person with disabilities as not having those disabilities anymore that's sort of unsettling because you're saying there was something wrong with who they were before and what oliver looked like before and so it it does make me uneasy to a certain extent for sure yeah no certainly and i and i don't want to diminish how well just be or you know just because there is that potential issue with it it doesn't erase or diminish the power of the scenes that it does like the Mm. the scenes we were talking about at all Mm -hmm. i would never um those work just so well that and are so powerful that um yeah that i feel like it it especially now with the second viewing that those things have lingered so much with me that it even overtakes the um you know this idea of of them being transformed into this these ideal states yeah Um, absolutely yeah yeah oh those scenes still have such a power for me and the thing is is that sometimes films can do all of that sometimes they can do really great wonderful things and then sometimes they can do other things and i think it's maybe about what you emphasize or what is more important to you and for me there are just certain things that i think the film does really beautifully and and just so well and and that emotional resonance for me but you had talked a bit about the male gaze um in this film and so i i feel like i rambled on about my stuff and so i want to give you plenty of opportunity to talk more about things that resonated with you for the film and and all of that um yeah one of the thing the other things that really struck me this time around was the weird thing that it kind of does with the male gaze as well because it invites all viewers which would include men who are watching the film um to admire uh oliver's transformation as well and to like really to regard his his and uh robert young is a very handsome man and it's and and we're supposed to look at him and be like oh now he is so handsome and oh now he is beautiful um all of those things and it just struck me how rare it is for cinema in general but very much so in classic hollywood where um 
it kind of gives this opportunity for a male audience member to really have a reason to like look at an actor, an attractive actor and admire how good looking he is. And that we also, you know, we're essentially a male member is put into the same place that um, a female audience member would be. Um, And I just thought that that was so interesting. And I couldn't think of many other examples of how that, um, you know, would happen. And it was just another interesting way that it was subverting the gaze and like how an audience member perceives the film as it's playing. So yeah, which are, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know if you wanted to respond to that. No, like I definitely had not thought about that when watching it, but yeah, you don't often see that in a film where, where we're invited to admire a man or, or even a film where a man's looks or his attractiveness are like put on display or it's much more of, I think what you see happen to women in films where their looks and their attractiveness, there's a lot of emphasis placed on that. Not that, you know, there's not really handsome men, you know, like Cary Grant and, and Paul Newman, who's my favorite personally. Um, Good choice. (laughs) He's like my ultimate, my number one. Um, But we're not often, I don't think, invited to look at men that way, to gaze at them that way. And so I had not thought about that. And you had also brought up the queer aspect of the film and that there is like this queerness in it um, that you saw. And I definitely didn't see that either. And so I would definitely love for you to elaborate on it and dig into that. Yeah, so it was um, it was kind of the way that, or one of the ways that it really resonated with me personally, and it made sense of why, like these gay authors that had first introduced me to the film, why it would be very resonant for um, a gay male member of the audience. And so, I mean, there's a there's a long history of gay men because it wasn't until very recently like weren't explicitly represented in films or characters or anything like that um that there's a long history of like gay men identifying with uh female characters or actresses and things like that and and so i feel like the film puts it in that way and there there were also so many moments of the way laura's like ugliness and um or just her outsiderness in general that's very much emphasized as well like she grew up in this village but she's an outsider of this village um and that really resonated in the way and it struck me that that first the the conversation you mentioned of the 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 boy and john and he he the the boy says like oh she's homely and john says oh or and he like says, oh, that's not something you should say. And the boy says, oh, but I'm supposed, you know, mom and dad. And then you tell me always to be truthful. And his response, John's response is that, you know, something that might be a truth isn't always something. It's not polite necessarily to talk about it. And that just felt that was like a moment that really resonated with me in the sense of that's also how like talk of of sexuality or um i feel like that's a very a lot of queer people can identify the way that people talk about you know like oh that's a (laughs) 
that's the reality. That's the truth. Oh, but that's not something we're supposed to talk about. Like, um, of all of those things. And just the general idea of the, how different, especially traditionally, I mean, now it, it is a somewhat different situation, but that there is, you know, before, especially in the pre-Stonewall era, but until, you know, extremely recently, like, queer people were not able to be themselves in public. And so the private spaces and your domestic space was a space that you were able to become the person you were. Um, and you could be open about that and you could um, do that. And so it, it also struck me, you know, the it resonated with me um, or it made me think of how many times queer couples had to justify their relationships by calling each other roommates or like two men who, you know, a bachelor pad or, you know, different things like that. And they're a romantic couple. Um, but that's something that had to be hidden away. And then it became like, it becomes like the domestic space is your magical space where it's the place where you can be with each other and you can love each other and openly express that with that. And you might invite certain other people into that. But it was also like when Oliver's parents come and it's revealed finally um, that they haven't transformed um, and that's revealed. But it, there was something very much about that of, of people or you know straight people or even like my parents I've had that experience I remember the first time with my um uh now my ex-boyfriend but the home that we lived together the first time my parents come and it was just such a strange experience to like have them in that space and looking at it and knowing that they're thinking something different they're reading the space differently in our relationship in it differently than what it was and so there was a lot of things like that where I would not say the film itself is at all doing that, but I can totally see the way of how um, it feels like this film really resonates with, um, with gay or with queer audience members as well. And I just found that very moving as well. Um, and just imagining in 1945, a gay man or you know even like a lesbian or other any kind of non-heterosexual person being able to 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 align with that and to feel those ways as well and that just really struck me this second time around watching it um and were some of my thoughts for that of why because i feel that way and i feel like other um it's definitely been important to other um gay men in particular and i and i suspect that those are some of the ways that it does it yeah, when you were talking, it brought up two things for me. First, um, made me think about how the queer community, I mean, I don't want to stereotype, but how some parts of the queer community have embraced sort of unconventionally, or I'm not saying it right, women who are unconventionally beautiful. Think of Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland, Cher, because these women often were sort of outcasts and outsiders and misfits in a way. So there are parts of the queer community that sort of embrace women like that or like Little Edie, you know, with Grey Gardens. And there tends to be like an interest in those women and a love for those women, maybe because of they because they were outsiders in some ways. It made me think of that. And and with 
queer couples in particular, it, it also makes me think about how the what queer couples go through is like society judging you, you know, society seeing your relationship in a particular way when you yourself don't see it that way. You're just in love with someone. You're just, you know, trying to live your life and love somebody. But the outside world sees you differently. And it's sort of similar with Oliver and Laura where they're just together. They love each other. They don't really think about it. They don't emphasize how they look. But then the outside world, you know, people um, in the village where they live, they look at them differently. They're on the outside, you know, and, and the way that they view that relationship and how hard that is and how painful that is when society views you in a certain way when you don't feel that way or you don't you don't see yourself the way that society does that's the way i feel also about that theme of ugliness and like i don't see myself the way other people see me i inhabit my body in a particular way and i don't i don't know how to put it into words it's like other people see me and that's all they see is what I look like. And there's all these other things to me, like the films I love and the books I love and my thoughts and my feelings and who I am and my sense of humor. There's all these other things that have nothing to do with what I look like on the outside. I I just think it's sort of similar with Oliver and Laura's relationship that there's how people view it. And then there's how they experience it, the way they experience it. Just the way I think queer people, queer couples, there's something similar at work there too, where you're experiencing your life in a certain way, but then society's on the outside saying, that's bad, that's wrong, you should be ashamed, and so on, and try to legislate it, and, you know, and stuff like that, and there's such a disconnect there, I think, and I think the film sort of shows some of that, but that was just something I was thinking about when you were talking. Yeah, no, I think that's really beautifully put. And that that is essentially what it is. Like, it really gets to that idea that within your home or within this certain space between the two people, you're able to make this into a beautiful, magical experience that those who are outside and don't want to see it that way or don't value it in that way, that they're not going to be able to see that um, and will, you know, literally call it out as immoral or you know sinful or wrong or gross or you know like anything like that and so yeah and so it really but then it's like well if you could see what we're seeing between ourselves like you would understand that that's not the case and Mm -hmm. so um yeah so it's a very it, it works as a very powerful metaphor in that in other ways I think it really dramatizes the 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 issue of like ugliness and the like that so much but it really I guess with with me wanting to talk about that it's it was to emphasize that it's such it's so well done and such a powerful it can be used as, as a metaphor for a lot of other situations and I think a lot of other people can find ways to that it resonates with them yeah I mean I just think if you experience otherness in some way whether it's through your physical body or whether it's through your sexuality or, you know, all kinds of different identities. 
if you live as as an other or if you feel marginalized or feel on the outside in some way I do think there's something about this film that could really resonate with you and also the way the film talks about how love is a very powerful thing how the film celebrates love you know and that's that's important as well you know but I just think that otherness and that not fitting in I I just think that people a lot of different people from different backgrounds and for different reasons I think that can really resonate with them certainly and I I can personally attest to that fact (laughs) yeah I mean both of us that's what's interesting is like me and you we're very different in a lot of ways you know like we see the film I think we connected to different things in the film because of our different lived experiences and that's totally fine you know like I experience a certain thing in my life and you experience yours and yet in this one film we're able to get all kinds of different things out of it you know and to feel like it's representing something that's a part of us and that's really important to us yeah no, and that's, I mean, clearly that it's a mark of a good film to be able to to resonate with various people and, yeah, experiences and circumstances of that. And, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm glad we chose to talk about it, because we each bring, like, different experiences to it, obviously. So, do you want to talk about disability? Yeah, I mean... I think it's a big part uh, of the film to a certain extent. Certainly, and we've kind of touched on various aspects of it already. But yeah, I think it is an important aspect of the film and that we should probably um, address it or give some time to addressing it for sure. Yeah, I mean, in the film, obviously Oliver is struggling with disability after coming back from World War II and I, I really don't know a lot of films that dealt with with the wounds of World War Two in that way. Like, I think we have a lot of films and stuff about World War One, And this this was based on a play that was really more about World War One, About the physical and the emotional scars of that very horrific war. In which millions of people died and people were maimed and they came back, you know, very disfigured. I don't know if we hear those stories as much about World War II. Like when it comes to the post-war or whatever with World War II, there's much more of like a, what, like a positive spin. Oh, things got better. You know, it's like seen as this prosperous time in America. I don't know if we see as many depictions of World War II veterans or of, of men coming back disfigured or, or um, disabled. But he's dealing with that. John Hillgrove in the film, the composer, he is blind. I think he was actually, I'm not sure where his blindness came from. Was it World War One? Yes. Yeah. Okay. He, uh, yeah. He does talk about that. I don't remember how, I don't know if he specifies how it happened, but mm-hmm. he does say they do have this moment where, where they first meet, I think. And John, they're, John is able to talk to him about, um, you know, yeah. like, oh, I'm blind. And he realized, you know, of that. And they, t- he emphasize or talk about how he was in the war and this happened. So it's clearly a moment that they're able to, um, you know, connect because they mm-hmm. both had these, you know, 
very seriously injured in these two different wars. And I, yeah, I just thought it was a very beautiful and very poignant citing both war or, you know, like the trauma, this like generational trauma, essentially, of like, um, you know, this older generation happened in World War One. This is happening all over again, essentially. Like, yeah. I just thought it was a really... It was very subtly and movingly done, but um, yeah, it's just very, it was very moving, that scene. Um, And I I can only imagine being in the middle or, you know, like in the 1940s of of watching that and being closer to that, um, to both of those things. And yeah, it was just very, a very moving moment, I thought. I mean, so many of the characters in this film are scarred by war. I mean, whether it's Oliver and John physically, or it's Mrs. Minnett who has lost her husband to World War One, the war is very present in their lives, and um, and Oliver is struggling with his disability, and he reaches out to John to try to help him and John I I think I guess we're thinking of the same scene John tells him something like trust yourself he gives him some kind of advice about how to deal with it and it just shows how hard that transition must be when you go from being an able-bodied person and able to do things and then now you no longer can and how difficult that is especially as a man and the issue of masculinity there and how hard that can be for men um, to cope with and not, not knowing how to maybe talk about your feelings or talk about the way that it makes you feel. Um, And so it's kind of moving to see these two men talking to each other and connecting in that way. You don't often see that. And um, you just, you don't often see the aftermath of war in quite this way. Yeah. And I think it's definitely worth mentioning that the actor, Herbert Marshall, who plays John, he literally had been seriously injured in World War One, um, and he actually, his leg was amputated. And so he literally, it gives a different, I, I had forgotten this fact of watching the film, it was rereading afterwards that this was the case, but it really retrospectively is like whoa that speech of him talking about what it's like to transition or you know like to have an injury and what it's like like that's also that's not just acting that's also on some level coming from a space of experience as well because he it's not within the film itself in any way but Herbert Marshall did experience something um, that's very close to what Oliver you know went through as well and um yeah i mean it it made me think like oh that would be like what would that have been if they had foregrounded his actual injury with it like he literally could have rolled up his pants and we would have seen the prosthetic leg or anything like that like how it just would have been an interesting thing but i i do think that it is also so moving that it's even though it's not specifically referenced in any way within the film that it that is another layer that is there underneath all that is going this conversation and all that's going on with his character and within the film itself yeah that was just a um just like gave it a another layer of of it being very moving i felt Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, when you told me that, I didn't know that about Herbert Marshall, so I think it definitely made me look at his character differently. It gave it a, another layer where you realize, like, wow, I mean, he went through World War One himself, and he he knows what the trauma of war is like, and then he's in this film and is exploring that trauma a bit. Yeah, and this is, I mean, I, I, I think it's, and I guess what made me think that, because... Um, of him showing his actual injury because I know the, the the most famous film of like the most famous film of like trauma post-world war two trauma was, I believe the next year, what year is enchanted cottage? 45, 45. Um, the, the best years of our lives is the one. And it actually, um, Harold Russell, who won the Oscar for it, he was a double amputee and he didn't have hands. And so that is the other film that really deals with that. But I, I think it's interesting, or as I was thinking about this, that the, how much The Enchanted Cottage appeared right at the end of the war, 45, 46, um, where like kind of the war was over or on its way of being over, but now it's like, oh, we have to deal with the fallout of all of this. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like we don't have anything equivalent. Like we just don't deal with our, with our own wars or anything or injury or anything like that. Um, or when it is, it's presented in this very like celebratory or like, overcoming the odds kind of a way yeah um in a way that's just really um yeah it just it it really reminded me of how as lush and beautiful and romantic the film is it's there's such dark elements to it as well and that this is a big part of it of just the realities of the war um and what it does to bodies and what it did to psychologically to the people that experienced it to the people they were coming home to um yeah i think watching it now as viewers as young viewers within you know um the the new the 2000s like it really is a a very powerful perspective into that yeah it definitely sort of dares to talk about some of these issues even if it doesn't completely center them but it does show Oliver struggling with it it does show somebody wounded by war dealing with the trauma of war in a really open way you know in a really direct and open way and um I mean I think I think that matters and it's interesting that it came out in 45 I imagine it would have been filmed maybe mm-hmm. as the war was still going on you know certainly. i mean At i don't least know a year before yeah, yeah all, i don't know all the details the yeah certainly mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure yeah it's not like they would have filmed it in a month or anything so i'm sure like the war was ongoing as they so they're really making this film about war or a little bit about war during the war makes me think a little bit about chaplin's the great dictator where he's making that film before World War II has even ended. I mean, I don't think. Right. I don't know the exact yeah, no, I think that's year. Yeah. <laughs> but he did it quite early in the war, I want to say. So I, I do think that's an important aspect of the film. And I wonder if they gave John the blindness because it fits in with the whole theme of like vision and seeing and the way that... Um, I mean, because a big part of the film is how... 
Laura and Oliver see each other and and vision and seeing is such a big part of that for them and so maybe they felt like making John blind maybe it connected to that in some way yeah no I mean I I think it's kind of his blindness is kind of crucial because he's the one who like the plot kind of turns on it on the fact that they you know that um oliver first opens up to him because he feels like he can't see him so he's not judging him like everybody else does or um or you know that um when they ask him to come you know that something has happened to come see it that they can't actually he can't actually verify it they can only tell him that oh we've transformed and we're beautiful now um, I think it's like a crucial to the plot mm-hmm. um, for sure. And especially because it is a film that is so focused and deal so much with the idea of vision and seeing in our perception of things and the shifting, how that shifts and can shift and all of that for sure. And John even has a moment, maybe it's when he was talking to Oliver, where he says that he felt more blind before he lost his vision. He's sort of talking about how his blindness has allowed him to experience the world in a different way, to rely on different senses and things like that. You know, him trying to talk to Oliver about how he has to really create a new way of living, a new way of experiencing the world through his disability and and trying to live with that. And I think that I think that also fits into the vision and the seeing of um how he he doesn't see Oliver and Laura he so he knows them in a different way than other people do he experiences them in a very different way than the rest of the world and so they also you can tell that they trust him and they open up to him because of that and um so yeah his blindness is definitely a big part of the film for that reason as well yeah no absolutely so it 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 really does touch on a, a whole lot of different aspects of trauma, of personal kinds of trauma, of social, you know, all society was dealing with the war. It's, it is really when you step back from the actual story and start thinking of it on that level. It really is amazing how many different ways that it's exploring that issue um, of that is here in the film yeah i wonder if like if a film student like looked at this film like what they could see about it like what does it say about america at that time and like maybe there are like these very deep undercurrents to it like i just wonder what like a film student or someone like really really academic could see in it then again they may see nothing in it i don't know yeah but yeah yeah, yeah. i feels, i can vouch that uh yeah. a scholar might Mm-hmm. still can manage to miss the point uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um no but yeah. i totally i totally think it's a film that completely warrants a very deep study of it um, yeah i mean we've been talking so long about it and i feel like we've only skimmed the surface of so many aspects of it um which i think just shows how yeah someone could write a whole monograph or a whole book on why on hasn't it been done this, this film because there are so many aspects of it i feel like we could we could keep talking about um for sure so yeah yeah there's 
there's a lot there for sure I think like it's just but it's also at the same time it's the kind of film I do think it needs to be experienced and felt and and that's when you really connect to it you know I mean there's there's a lot going on and we've talked about some really great parts of the film I think but I do think I I wish it was more like available like widely available for people to see it it's just it's such a special film and I mean do you have any sort of concluding thoughts or because we have really just talked about everything yeah no I mean as I said I feel like if we could keep going on about different aspects of it but I I feel like those were those were a lot of the main things that I felt we should talk about um and yeah just want to emphasize I I really do hope people you know seek it out um it really is a a worthwhile and and very rich film despite its reputation of you know just being a romance or melodramatic or you know all of those things that it really no it really I think it I think it stands as, you know, with the best of classic Hollywood films from that era. I very much feel that way. That's a big thing to say, I think. Like, it doesn't (laughs) have, it doesn't have that kind of reputation at all. No, and and then as I say that at the same time, it's like, oh, but I also love the aspect of it of just like, of people discovering it. And it's like this special film and kind of like the cult aspect of it as well. So, Mm -hmm. um but yeah, I mean, I think it would, um, yeah, no, I think I do hope people seek it out and, and look into it because it's, it's very rewarding for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think my final thoughts are just, I also think it's just a beautiful film about love, about the power of love, about the ability of once you love somebody, whether it's romantic love or familial love or whatever is that you're able to see somebody often in ways that they can't see themselves. And sometimes it's vice versa where they see you in ways that you can't see yourself. And that, you know, really with Oliver and Laura, they're saved by their love. She, she is lonely. She's isolated. She's struggling in life. Oliver is at a point of in his life when he's struggling and he's alone and he, his parents are not very supportive of him, his mother and stepfather. His fiance can't handle what's happened. He's very alone. And these two people who may have just stayed alone and, and lived out the rest of their days alone. And um, they, but they find each other and they fall in love with each other and they save each other in that way. And I think that's why it's just such a beautiful, romantic, sweeping story in that way of this idea that love saves. But I really do love the idea of, of, being able to see people for who they are and to look beyond the surface and the way that love can transform the way we see others and the way we see ourselves. I think that is a worthwhile thing. And I think that's an important message. And I think it, it really resonates with me. And I think it probably resonates with a lot of people. I think that's beautifully put. I completely agree. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that we talked about this film together and, um, I thank you for being on Her Head and Films, being the first ever guest, and uh, talking to me about The Enchanted Cottage. Yeah, no, I will say again, thank you for the opportunity. It has been a pleasure, and I feel like we could just keep talking and talking, and um, no, it's been a real pleasure and a real honor, so thank you so much. 